0: Incredible creation. Applying the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. Let us hear from the word of God in Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 13. But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain it to you. Who amongst all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. In whose hands is the life of every living thing. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with age of men and with length of days understanding. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. There's much in modern technology that is marvelous. However, the incredible complexity and intricacy of God's creation is infinitely more marvelous than any of the wonders and productions of science. Many of today's scientific achievements are inspired by and modeled upon marvels of nature. For centuries, men dreamed of flying, And this is an actual patent, submitted in 1889, and men wanted to fly, but we do not have the muscles powerful enough to lift our own body weight into the air. Therefore, men could glide, but that was always downhill, find a high enough hill, and glide downhill. So gliding is something we could do, but that's not quite the same thing as flying. And over the years, people have come up with some pretty innovative different contraptions and designs. Well, in 1781, James Watt invented a steam engine that produced rotary power. This is super important because up till this stage, nothing could go faster than a horse could run. This is the beginnings of steam engines and so on. Well, in 1876, Nicholas Auto built an internal combustion engine. And he built the Otto engine, and then Rudolf Diesel built the diesel engine. This made engines possible not just for cars, ships, but potentially aircraft. Then the brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright had wanted to fly ever since they had played with kites as boys. Later, they learned engineering skills by building bicycles. They were actually bicycle makers. They realized the key challenge of flight was to design a craft that could be controlled. A plane that cannot be balanced in the air is as useless as a bicycle which cannot be steered. Just an accident waiting for something to happen. Well, there were some very interesting ideas of how we were going to achieve this. And uh, some of these designs immediately you can see fail. And there were a lot of fails. Uh, You you can watch clips of just one aircraft design after the other smashing uh, seconds after taking off, if not faster. Wilbur watched birds in flight and noticed how they banked into a turn as a cyclist does. He concluded that birds turn and keep balance by twisting their wingtips. He resolved to design a wing that could twist. In 1900, Wilbur and Orville built an aircraft with twistable wings. Now, they first flew it as a kite and later as a piloted glider. They discovered, and this, by the way, is their 1903 patent, or the first aircraft, Uh, which was finally patented by 1906, but it was submitted by 1903. We normally look at 1903 as the beginning of the age of flight. They discovered an aircraft needs three basic controls to adjust, pitch, roll, and side-to-side movement, although they were frustrated that their wings did not produce enough lift. The Wright brothers built a wind tunnel and experimented with hundreds of wing shapes until they found the ideal shape, size, and angle. In 1902, with the new design, the art of balancing the aircraft on the wind. Now they need to mount an engine on it. With the knowledge they had gained with their wind tunnel, they designed a propeller. They also had to build their own engine. Finally, 17 December 1903, the Wright brothers started the engine, the propeller spun, the aircraft lifted off into the cold wind, and this introduced the age of flight. Now their flight was shorter than the wingspan of a 747 jumbo jet, but it was powered flight. It was the beginning. As the brothers became international celebrities, they pointed out that God's creation had taught them all the principles of flight. The word of God tells us, but now ask the birds of the air, and they will tell you the hand of the Lord has done this. It's apparent that everything about a bird is designed for flight. They are engineered for flight intelligent design in action. The shafts of feathers, the actual wing feathers, supports the bird's entire body weight during flight. How can their feathers be so light, yet so strong? If you cut through the shaft of a feather, you will see it is an engineering masterpiece. The shafts of a feather have a foam sandwich of cross beams, which strengthen the light design. If you see any feathers lying in your garden with it, guinea fowl or whatever, try it out. Engineers have studied the shafts of bird feathers and used the foam sandwich theme design in aircraft. Aircraft are designed on how God designed birds. You see this design in aircraft time and again. The bones of birds are hollow and in many cases they are strengthened by internal struts and of what engineers call the warren girder. The hollow bones are honeycombed with air spaces strengthened by Crisscrossing struts. The number of hollow bones varies from species to species, though large gliding and soaring birds tend to have the most. When engineers designed the wings of the spacecraft shuttle, space shuttle, they incorporate these features that have been observed in the bones of birds. Pilots balance modern aircraft by adjusting flaps on the wings and the tail, just as the Wright brothers noticed. Birds do. The average bird uses some 48 muscles in its wings and shoulders to change the configuration motion of its wings and individual feathers. Birds can make multiple adjustments several times a second. You need to film it and then slow it down to be able to see what actually you just saw because it's so fast how they can adjust. And it's a marvel to see birds in flight. And I'm sure we've all been impressed seeing them with it landing, taking off, maneuvering in in flight, uh, going in formation, the way how they can adjust. Eagles and falcons are the example and the envy of aircraft designers. If only we could design aircraft as well as God designed eagles. Eagles are just designed for flight. They can fly the highest. They can see the clearest. They can swoop down the fastest. Eagles are the most incredible animals around in terms of eyesight. An eagle's eyesight is 12 to 20 times better than human eyesight. And they can plummet at 280 kilometres an hour. They can hit their prey at 120 kilometres an hour with their talons. Watch a fish eagle in action. Spotted the fish just below the surface, one flap and they're away, breakfast in their talons, and off to a perch to enjoy breakfast. Extraordinary. And Jesus said he'll make us fishers of men. These talons are so powerful. In fact, they exert 480 pounds per square inch pressure. But it's not on an inch. It's concentrated on like a pinhead, uh, like a sharpened pencil head. The talons are so powerful. You know, if they give you a glove in these eagle counter places so you have the eagle neck, there, that's just to make you feel better, to avoid scratching. If they want to crush your arm, they could crush your arm. There's nothing you could do to stop it. They could crush the bone. They've got that kind of power. They can crack skulls. I mean, that's how powerful eagle's talons are. Eagle's talons are bigger and longer than lion's claws. They're called raptors because they kill with their talons. The beak is just there for eating, they don't kill with the beaks. The beak's there for tearing off the flesh and so on. The talons are what they kill with. And it might make us feel good to have that leather glove, but you know, really and truly, um, that's just for show. Sure. They can swoop in so fast. Pilots have seen eagles flying up at about their height at 15,000 feet and swoop down. It picks up some rodents on the ground. They could see that rodent from 15,000 feet up. Yes, in fact, you could put a newspaper, assuming an eagle could read. If you put a newspaper three foot field lengths away, 300 meters away, they could read the newsprint. That's a good eyesight. And by the way, eagles mate for life. They're inflexibly loyal to their marriage partner. Very doting parents. Now, flight, especially takeoff, consumes a lot of energy. So, birds need a powerful, fast burning engine. A bird's heart beats faster than that of a similar sized mammal. And it's usually larger and more powerful than the heart of a similar sized mammal. You take a hummingbird, their heart beats up to 1,260 times per minute. You know, we like 60 to 80 heartbeats a minute. Uh, they're 1,260 heartbeats minute, But it's a little, little bird, and they've got to fly very, very, very fast, and they've got to hover and so on. And so these hummingbirds, you know, imagine they're all, I mean, that's a whole lot faster than anything we know. Also, the bird's lungs have a different one-way flow design, which is more efficient than other mammals. The measure of an aircraft's efficiency is whether it can take off carrying sufficient fuel. And when a Boeing 747 Jumbo jet takes off for a 10-hour flight. Roughly a third of its weight is fuel. I was in a 747 taking off from Frankfurt, Germany, back in 1987. As as we took off, there was an explosion in one of the engines. The pilot came out with a cup of coffee, acting all very calm. After all, you could see, you know, traffic people looked out the window, and he could see this engine was smoking. Went back and, well, it took us a couple of hours before we could land. One of the engines had gone. Uh, by the way, this was, this was suspected to be sabotaged on the SAA plane. Nevertheless, we were delayed by a day. We had to wait in Frankfurt while I sent another 747 up, and this plane got fixed. Nevertheless, they couldn't land in under an hour because they had to release huge amounts of fuel so they were light enough to land. And they had enough fuel for the 12, 13-hour flight to Johannesburg, so uh, literally they had to be flying around there dispersing fuel in the air until it could finally land because that's how much... On takeoff is so great, they can't land with that same weight they just took off on. 747 jets, quite an amazing, amazing feat. Well, similarly, a migrating thrush may lose almost half its body weight during a 10-hour flight. You remember, it's, it's flapping its wings, it's beating its heart, its lungs, doing all the work. It's very hard. <coughs> the barn swallow is one of the wonders of God's creation. At 18 grams, they're one of the smallest migrating birds. The average barnswallow flies 12,000 kilometers every single year for 18-gram animal. It leaves Europe during August, September, autumn every year to spend its summer in the southern hemisphere. The barnswallow breeds in Europe, but summers in South Africa. In fact, I've come across these uh, characters because when we've been at Givinadi Mission in Tongat, coast to Canelands in, in Natal, very close to Durban, they've got wetlands and marshes there. And three million barn owls, uh, sorry, barn swallows fly from Germany every year and they summer in South Africa. In fact, three million just in that one area. So we've got these migrations between Germany and, and Natal. And these swallows, by the way, when they come in the area, you can sleep much easier. They wipe out the mosquito population very fast. Uh, when we've been up at Langebahn, there's a whole lot of, I think they're storks that come in from Russia every year, about 80,000 of them. They move in uh, every year and back, and absolutely inflexible. Uh, they always come to the same place and so on. And they serve garden people by controlling insect populations like mosquitoes. Their migrating journey from KwaZulu-Natal, that's right down to where I was talking about Tonga um, and uh, Canelands, up to Germany, every year, when migrating to fly an average of 400 kilometres a day. For an 18-gram little bird, that's pretty impressive. You know, just think, so, Cameron, what's the furthest you've cycled in a day? 120, 120 k's. That's impressive, by bicycle. Imagine flying 400 kilometers a day, uh, you know, under your own steam. You know, that, that's impressive. Approximately 3 million barn swallows migrates every year between Germany and South Africa. Now, when you look at the different birds migrating between Europe and Africa, it's it's very, very impressive, and a lot of them come to South Africa. And many use the land bridge, which is the Bible lands, uh, to travel either up to Europe and Asia or down to Southern Africa. And there's another crossing bridge, and that's going along the boot of Italy and then into Tunisia, and there's another one going across uh, the... Um, Spanish, Iberian Peninsula, into Morocco, and on. So uh, there's also another one between the 80 crossing points. You've got four main crossing points for northern hemisphere birds crossing into southern hemisphere, or into Africa, that is. Obviously, there's one to do it between North and South America too. But pretty impressive amounts of animals commuting every year backwards and forwards. And this is uh, amazing because how do they find their way? And that's, that's another story, the tracking. But uh, the migratory birds, you talk about hundreds of millions of birds every year flying backwards and forwards. And there's major bird airways and flyways that they're traveling. And that's why we don't actually like these massive wind farms, because many of these wind farms are in the path of migratory birds and are a major danger to these birds traveling back and forth. And it's, it's actually quite obnoxious how. These wind farms are not just littering the landscape, looking ugly as anything, costing a massive fortune, very unreliable, but do you know that more than 70% of all the wind turbines and the related paraphernalia for this green energy comes from red China? So we're actually bolstering the communist Chinese governments and supporting their slave labour programmes as well. So I don't like these wind farms at all, considering what they've done to the migratory bird populations too. And where are the greens on this issue? Well, they support in the winter of course. But what about the birds? When a bar tailed godwit takes off from Alaska, heading for New Zealand, over half its body weight is fat. Astonishingly, this bird, the godwit, flies over 190 hours. That's eight days non stop. Have you ever gone eight days without sleep? While moving the whole time. I mean, this is just phenomenal. They're crossing the Pacific Ocean. Absolutely amazing. No commercial aircraft can fly 190 hours non-stop. Absolutely impossible. There's no military aircraft that can do it either without mid-air refuelling, that's for sure. Bartel Godwit. Look at the distances they travel. New Zealand to Alaska. Alaska to New Zealand. And sometimes up to Korea as well. Phenomenal. So the world bird population has a lot to teach us. Now, perhaps you've had the problem of finding a way across an unfamiliar town. Even with maps and directions, you can get lost. I remember being at the karate dojo where my son Christopher was training, and he got his national colours and he's representing South Africa at an international karate competition. They were going to uh, up to New York, and I remember sitting in there with the parents meeting with him, and uh, the head of the dojo said, "We will meet in Central Park." And I just laughed. Do you have any idea how big Central Park is? It's not like Randebosch Com. Central Park in New York City is bigger than most of our suburbs. Bigger than several suburbs. You can be in Central Park blowing a whistle, shouting for all your words, and not be heard in many parts of Central Park. It's huge. We'll meet in Central Park in New York. huh? Good luck on that one. How do navigators find their ways across featureless oceans? Well, many get lost, actually. Merely having a compass doesn't help unless the navigator knows where his position is in relation to his destination. Not until the invention of the sextant and the marine parameter in the 1730s could navigators determine exact location and plot their course on a map. Each fix required complex calculations. This is before calculators, of course, so this is, you know, the people need serious mathematics. However, today, motorists and sailors in many countries navigate using a global positioning system of GPS. You know who invented the GPS, and why? The GPS was originally designed in the 1960s. Now a good friend and board member, General Ben Parton, was one of the originators and architects of it. And the purpose of the GPS is to deliver cruise missiles, precision guard weapons, to the target. And so originally, in the 1960s, the only purpose for GPS was to deliver precision guard weapons to the exact address you wanted. you Go down in the street, turn right at the traffic light, knock on the right door, go down uh, the stairs, and detonate where it was needed. I mean, that's how precise these weapons were designed. The GPS was a key part of that. Now, the GPS was later made available to the public, becoming fully operational as a civilian navigation tool in 1996. Something mind-boggling for us. We've got our GPS in the cabinet over there, our first GPS, and it's the only thing in that cabinet that doesn't work. It was destroyed in a flash flood when our vehicle got drowned in, a, in the Yei River uh, back in 1990s, in 1998. So we had one of the earliest GPSs out there for our mission, and uh, that's the only thing that doesn't work in that, those cabinets. All those other materials there do work still. But the GPS is a marvel of computer technology. The device can show you exact location on the screen and guide you to the address where you want to go, assuming it's correctly programmed can sometimes lead to the wrong address because they haven't updated the software. Satellite navigation devices depend on about 30 satellites that each broadcast signals indicating the satellite position and the time to an accuracy of a few billionth of a second. How does anyone even calculate that? Who knows? But once your GPS has established contact with three satellites, it accurately measures how long a signal takes to travel from the satellite to your receiver. Now, this requires complex calculations. In a few seconds, a GPS computes the distance to three satellites, all thousands of kilometers away, traveling in different directions at speeds of many kilometers per second. Yet the GPS is clearly not the first automatic navigation device. God's equipped his stalks with that kind of ability as well. Jeremiah 8 verse 7. Even a stalk in the heavens knows her appointed times and a turtle dove. The swift and the swallow observe the times of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. So storks. I remember seeing a lot of storks in KwaZulu-Natal who would be in Germany or Russia or Ukraine uh, in their summer and then coming down to us for our summer. Travelling up to Europe, often see people who've got stork um, platforms on their roof in order to enable storks to easily build nests on their roofs. And, uh, storks are a massive part of the migratory population. And Jeremiah wrote about the migrating of storks and swallows over 2,500 years ago. Now today, people still marvel at creatures that migrate. Consider the salmon, which can swim thousands of kilometers in the ocean and return to the stream where they were born. Even a dead fish can float downstream, but a steel-headed trout swims upstream. And I've seen them in upstate New York, stood there and watched a whole lot of people turning out, seeing these salmon jumping up waterfalls, jumping up waterfalls, falling back, falling back, but they keep going until they get up this waterfall. Now, some people have nicely built pools and steps around a waterfall to make it easier for the salmon to get up and down, but they are getting up and down, make no mistake. Uh, That's often where there's a dam that they've built to enable the salmon to get there, so then they make multiple pools that they can jump up all the way along. Otherwise, uh, the dams would have messed up the whole migratory plans, obviously. Leatherback sea turtles have made incredible journeys. One that nested in Indonesia was tracked as it migrated 20,000 kilometers to the coast of Oregon, the United States. Leatherback turtles often return to the same area of Indonesia to nest again. Monarch butterflies fly from vast areas of America, migrating more than 1,700 kilometers to a small area of Mexico. Even though they've never been to Mexico before, these monarch butterflies find their way off to the same tree where their great grandparents roosted the previous year. Just how they do it still baffles researchers. I mean, it's not like butterflies are that big. But they've got a GPS system built into them somehow. God has amazingly designed his creatures. And so you see many creatures that migrate all over the world who have baffled people. Take homing pigeons who've been transported more than 150 kilometers to unfamiliar places while under deep anesthesia, in rotating drums. This is how they're really trying to really make it hard for these poor guys. And yet, after a few circlings, they've calculated position, turned accurately towards home. How do the homing pigeons do this? I mean, people, research have gone so far as to force the homing pigeons to wear frosted eyeglasses. I mean, how much must you stagger things against them, put the odds up against them, and yet they still found a way home. So scientists now believe that pigeons calculate their position in relationship to home by detecting the directions by which they receive important navigational information. Scientists took 18 albatrosses from a small island in the center of the Pacific to several locations thousands of kilometers away on the rim of the Pacific and then released them. Some were taken to the West Rim of the Pacific Ocean, others to the Eastern Rim. Yet within a few weeks, most of these albatross have returned to their small island in the centre of the Pacific. How did they do it? Whereas our automatic navigation devices depend totally on satellites, many animals seem to have various navigation methods from observing landmarks and the sun to detecting magnetic fields to distinctive smells and even sounds. Biology professor James Gold wrote, animals whose lives depend upon navigation, accurate navigation, are uniformly over-engineered. Now explain this, evolutionist. How can they be over-engineered? They've got a whole series of backup technologies. They usually come equipped with alternative strategies, a whole series of backups, between which they switch depending on which is provided and which is giving the most reliable information. That's how they could put these guys in rotating drums, put them under deep anesthesia, give them frosted glasses, and they still find their way back home. This is incredible. They have stacked the odds against these poor uh, homing pigeons and so on, and yet they still beat the odds. The sophistication of animal navigation continues to intrigue and confound scientific investigators. They can't explain it. I mean, our pilots can have radio, maps, GPSs, And they can still get lost sometimes, as we can too. And yet the animals uniformly find their way. And then you can start talking about the whales. Do you know, the average human being can communicate 120 words a minute. Americans can communicate up to 180 words a minute. Dolphins can communicate 500 words a minute. 500 words a minute, dolphins. Do you know that whales communicate in such sophisticated um, patterns of communication. They say astronauts in outer space, when uh, seeking um, to tune into Earth, have heard the songs of the whales in outer space. Whale songs can be heard thousands of kilometers under sea, which is a key way that they communicate. But they can hear the songs of the whales in outer space. Is that not incredible? And these are amazing creatures. And the intelligence of whales and dolphins, by the way, if we think we're the most intelligent creatures on the planet, we should think again. Whales and dolphins might be more intelligent in some areas. In fact, they certainly can communicate very sophisticatedly. Do you know that naval departments study dolphins? A whole ecosystem of how you track submarines and how submarines can locate things when they don't have windows on submarines, of course, is by copying the technology used by the dolphins. The dolphins send out clicks, a series of clicks. And by what bounces back, they can tell. If you've got your hand at war, they can tell your hands at war. They can tell how much bones, how much flesh, which finger you've got the ring on, all of that. Dolphins have incredible ability to know everything that's going on around them through the echo system, And we're trying to model that in our submarines and naval warfare technology. But their communication is so sophisticated. And by the way, Dolphins are known to have rescued a lot of people. Many people who've been drowning and so on, dolphins rescued them. Many people have testified how sharks attack them, dolphins came and protect them. How can you tell immediately, if you're at sea, in the water, the difference between a whale coming to you or a dolphin? There's where you can immediately tell. Yes? Oh sorry. No, I was became a shark and a dolphin. Yeah, the difference between a a shark and a dolphin, that's what I mean. The, the tail on the shark is vertical, whereas the tail of the dolphin is flat and horizontal. That's correct. So, dolphins and whales have flat tails, horizontal tails, and they go up and down. Sharks go from side to side. Sharks' fins or, or tails, sharks' tails are always vertical and they move by swaying from side to side. Dolphins and whales have flat tails and they move up and down. So immediately, even from a distance, you should be able to tell the difference between a dolphin and a shark. People often panic when it's a dolphin, and they shouldn't, because no dolphins have been known to attack people, if not attack themselves and defend themselves. And why do they jump like this? Why do whales and dolphins skip by the water and leap by the water? I think it's for joy. I mean, the Bible does say you should leap for joy. And they obviously enjoy abilities God's given them and revel in the creation God's given them. There's so much you can learn from God's creatures. And the sea creatures, Well, dolphins and whales, are magnificent and they are beautiful and intelligent and they are merciful. They've gone out of their way to rescue people, which, considering how some people have treated them, uh, that's really grace. Now In 1973, Dr. Martin Koop was the first to demonstrate a handheld cellular telephone. It had a battery, a radio, and a microprocessor, and a mini-computer. New Yorkers were stunned to see Cooper making a phone call on the street. Now this wouldn't particularly shock you, but as I grew up, there was no way you could make a telephone call without a fixed landline. I mean it's just incomprehensible. I remember my father playing a joke on a friend of his who's staying in our garden with the caravan. He walked out to the telephone unplugged and said, There's a phone call for you and a man, said, hello, hello, and you know, everyone's laughing. He goes, How on earth do you expect a telephone to work? it's not linked to uh, anything, uh, ha-ha, you know, how stupid can you be to, and, you know, well, I was early in the morning rubbing sleep out of my eye, uh, taking a telephone and thinking that there'd be someone on the other side, it's obviously it's disconnected. Now, nobody's going to be caught by that today because we don't even think of landlines. We use cell phones, right. But this was the first. The invention was only made possible because of previous inventions. The invention of a reliable battery in 1800, the development of the telephone by... Alexander Graham Bell, 1896. The invention of the radio, 1895. And the computer by 1946, I would argue a little earlier. The invention of a microprocessor in 1971. All of these made cell phones possible, because a cell phone needs all of that. But communication with sophisticated devices was not actually that new. Since the dawn of creation, a communication device, which has often been taken for granted, is the voice. Over half a billion, half of the billions of neurons in the motor cortex of your brain are involved in controlling your speech organs. To do just a minute, or to give a presentation, you need to be using billions of neurons. About 100 muscles operate the complex mechanism of your jaw, your throat, your lips, your tongue, your chest to enable you to speak. Muscles operate the complex mechanisms of your jaw, throat, lips, tongue, and chest to enable you to speak. Of course, the human voice would be of no benefit without the ear. The ear is also part of the same communication system. The ear converts sound into electrical impulses that the brain can process. Your brain analyzes sounds so that you can recognize people by the timbre of their voice. Even at the end of a telephone, you can often recognize a person just by their voice. Your brain also measures how many millionth of a second one ear hears before the other and calculates precisely the direction and roughly from what distance the voice is coming from. You take this for granted, you don't even think about it, your brain processes this naturally. Now, these are just two of the features that enable you to listen to one person at a time while several others might be speaking in the background. You could be in a hall and several people are speaking, and you're able to focus on just one person, although sometimes you might be a bit distracted, if other people are very loud and so on. But sophisticated wireless communication with caller ID recognition is not new. It's first found in how God created us. So the marvels of our technology are based on the marvels of God's creation. Soon after men learned to broadcast sound, inventors wondered if they could also transmit, transmit live pictures. To appreciate the challenge, consider how television works. First, the TV camera focuses on a scene, focuses the scene onto a target device that reads a picture. Instead of reading lines of letters on a page, as you do in books, the television has lines of spots, or pixels, in the picture. It converts these pixels into an electronic video signal, which can be transmitted to another place. A receiver then converts this electronic signal back into a live picture. John Logie Burrard from Scotland has been credited as the inventor of television. How many people have heard of John Logie Burrard? Well, we've got one person here. Good show. When poor health caused him to give up his job, as an electrical engineer, he devotes his time to a subject which had fascinated him since he was a teenager. How to build a machine that could transmit live images. Hertz television camera used a hat box. Women all used to have hat boxes. No one would be seen dead in church without a hat. And they had to travel with hat boxes. So there were lots of hat boxes around. He used the hatbox perforated by 30 holes as a disc. As the disc spun. The holes scanned successful lines of pictures and allowed the light to fall onto a photoelectric cell. The cell produced a video signal that was transmitted to a receiver. In the receiver, the signal was amplified to illuminate a variable light behind a similar spinning disk that reproduced the picture. The challenge was, how do I synchronize the disks? To support himself while working on the project, Baird raised funds by polishing shoes. But forget about this government funding grants and so on. Most inventors had to fund themselves. On the 2nd of October 1925, Byrd transmitted the first television picture from one end of his attic to the other. The first person ever to appear on television was a frightened office boy from downstairs, and he had paid half a crown for his services. In 1928, Byrd broadcast the first television pictures across the Atlantic. And this is the actual image of this Cross Atlantic, 1928 image. The Berlin Olympics, 1936, was the first time television was used in an actual practical sense. And this is what the TV cameras looked like. The world had never seen anything like this. They were filming in live, real-time television. And there were people, not too many people, uh, but people who actually had the first TV cameras. And this is what a telephone TV uh, looked like at that time. Uh, They were filming the Olympics and people in remote conditions around Germany were able to watch it by television. Absolutely extraordinary. They didn't just film it and transmit it in black and white, they filmed also in color. That's separate from the TV, but they were also filming in color and you can see some color uh, pictures of the original Olympics, 1936. The most successful Olympics probably ever, the only one that didn't end with billions in debt which had to be paid for the next several generations, Uh, and it was a very successful Olympics, phenomenal achievements. Uh, However, this wasn't the first time that live pictures were ever transmitted. Proverbs 20 verse 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord, has made them both. Your eyes are like tiny television cameras. They convert images into electronic signals. And they transmit these signals along the optic nerve to the back of your brain. Where the actual seeing takes place, the eye is a magnificent marvel in miniature. Just 24 millimeters in diameter, about 7.5 grams in weight, the eye is ingeniously engineered. For example, it has separate systems for dim and bright lighting. People on GCC night types will discover this. You actually have night sights, which you aren't aware of, because it normally only activates after being 20 minutes in the dark. Most people don't wait that long before switching on a torch. But 30 minutes after entering a dark room, your eyes may become 10,000 times more sensitive to light. You see, eye has 100 times more light-sensitive cells or pixels than most video cameras. A large portion of those cells are packed into a small spot the center of the retina called the fovea, which provides the sharpest vision. Electrical signals from light-sensitive cells pass from one nerve cell to another towards the optic nerve. But the nerve cells do far more than just pass the signals on. They process the images. They enhance vital information. They suppress unneeded details. The visual cortex of your brain is a live, sophisticated video receiver. It sharpens images by enhancing edges. It compares signals from cells sensitive to primary colors so that you can distinguish literally between millions of shades of color. Well, theoretically. Of course, men can only tell about what six or seven colors Women can tell about a hundred different colors, uh, you know, but uh, there's apparently millions of shades of, of color if you are attuned to it. Your brain also compares the tiny dissimilarities between what your two eyes see, so that you can perceive distance and depth. You know, there's a slight distinction, so to get depth perception, two eyes enable you to do that. Consider how your eyes can recognize faces in a distant crowd and send electrical impulses to your brain, and then transform those signals into clear images. All pretty impressive. Consider how subtle details of the face are compared with ones in your memory, so that you instantly recognize your friend in a crowd. Isn't that an awe-inspiring process? Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Now, how did this all just evolve by accident? Frequently you resign read in secular humanist scientific journals, which claim to believe in evolution, statements like, of all the body coverings, nature's designed, feathers are the most various and the most mysterious. Excuse me, did you say designed? Are they saying they believe in intelligent design? But you you can read this in, in some evolutionary magazines. According to Oxford Dictionary, to design something means to plan something with a specific purpose or intention in mind secular humanists who believe in evolution frequently refer to nature designing things i thought nature is an impersonal force although they claim to believe nature is a mere force they attribute intelligent design to nature can an impersonal force design things what many evolutionists refer to as nature we know to be creation and the creator does actually have a name for i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has made it known to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that they are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1. 16 to 20. From nature we learn that God's wisdom is superior to ours. If God can design things better than inventors can, does it not stand to reason he can advise us better than human counselors can? As Francis Bacon, the father of the scientific method, put it, there are two books laid before us to study to prevent us falling into error. The first is the volume of the scriptures, the word of God, which reveals the the will of God. And then there's a volume of the creatures, which expresses power. So, general revelation, in nature, special revelation, in the Bible. The great astronomer Johannes Kepler, the founder of celestial mechanics, described as a brilliant mathematician and astronomer, who contributed to the scientific revolution with his works on planetary orbits, laws of motion, the scientific method. Kepler's accomplishments formed the foundation of modern theoretical astronomy. Kepler viewed all science as man attempting to think God's thoughts after him. In fact, in a real sense, the real creative genius is God. All great artists recognize that what they're doing is discovering God's beauty and design in nature. All great scientists say they're discovering God's order and design in nature. God's the real ultimate artist, ultimate designer, the ultimate engineer. And we just have the privilege of thinking his thoughts after him. So Isaac Newton, the father of calculus and dynamics, was a scientific genius and a dedicated Christian. Newton formulated the theory of gravitation and the laws of motion. He made vital contributions to mathematics, astronomy, and physics. Newton maintained that two key sources of knowledge. One is revealed in the Bible, and the other is revealed in nature. Newton believed that in order to truly know the creator, you must study the natural order of things. Newton dedicated his life to know the word of God, the Bible, and the works of God, creation. Samuel Morse was a man responsible for the development of the modern telegraph and the Morse code. One of the greatest innovations in the world of communication. You couldn't communicate faster or further than I could see or runner or a horse could run before this. But Samuel deeply absorbed his family's Calvinism, which he eventually applied to all his scientific work. And in 1844, Samuel Morse astonished the U.S. Congress assembled in the Supreme Court chamber by sending words from Numbers 23.23, What hath God wrought? And this first intercity telegraph line in the world communicated the words of Scripture to inaugurate this great invention. Morse laid the foundations for the development of modern communications. Now, the designer of our organs for communication obviously wants to communicate with us. The one who designed the ear and the mouth, (laughs) he obviously wants to communicate with us. If we find learning about inventors interesting, we will find learning about the Creators far more interesting. Whether they acknowledge it or not, scientists have learned their design from the Creator God. God speaks to us through general revelation in creation, through special revelation in the Bible. When we study the works in the light of his word, we come to understand the God of creation. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has, in these last days, spoken to us by his Son. What more could God say? All scriptures inspired of God and is useful, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This presentation we will upload onto our frontlinemissionessay.org website, both as an audio and as a video. Any questions, any comments on incredible creation? Cameron. you know the part where you said dolphins jump and joy? Yes. Now, some dolphins, called the spinner dolphins, that actually communicate by jumping. I'm sure that can work too. Of course, like when seals do it, they're also, or porpoising, they're able to Travel faster through air than they can through water, but also I think they can see further and so on. So there's probably a different reasons, but sometimes you just see them leaping for joy, it seems. Yeah. And what I found interesting in most of like, the evolutionists and Marxism people, they know about God. It's not like they don't know him. they know about him. they just refuse to listen. Well said. Any other comments, observations, questions? For many BWSs, we've had Dr. Philip Stott giving us great insights on creation science. Uh, this year we're going to have Dr. Barsi Basson on Tuesday, or Tuesday morning he's going to be giving us creation science presentations. You were going to say, Judah? Do you think there would have been any like, high-end technology before Noah's Flood that got destroyed? Yes, definitely. That is a consensus at the Creation Museum at the Ark Encounter. They are convinced that there was very high technology in the pre-flood world. Of course, wicked people, but uh, there's no evidence that man started out as some kind of caveman and evolved better. There's more evidence that right from the beginning, man is reading, writing, capable, intelligent, building cities, but that man degenerates. And, And the proof of this is, you can see in our society, people who were from space age families going stone age. In one generation, uh, there's somebody who comes to our gate, who I have led to the Lord on a previous course in the streets of Claremont, and he is living on the streets. We brought him here, got him showered up, cleaned up, closed, so on. Took him out to a mission that specialises in rehab for people on drugs and all that. And uh, within a day, he asked to come back. Said, "I love my son too much. He's still living on the streets." Now, what makes it worse, what makes it more incredible, is this: I know his brother well. His brother's a very successful businessman. Now, they grew up in privilege in one of the most privileged suburbs in Cape Town. Both got the same upbringing, education, all the rest, all the rest, most privileged schools and so on. And, uh, and the, his, his brother, who is a successful businessman, says he won't give another cent to his brother because he doesn't want to fund his vice. He knows what's going on. So there you've got somebody who comes from a sort of space-age family and has chosen to go back to Stone Age. And you get people like that. You get people whose fathers are engineers and scientists and medical doctors, and they themselves have decided to live on the beach and uh, just go into drugs and so on. So it's not evolution, but rather devolution that we see worldwide. There's a lot of people this cavemen didn't come first. You have cavemen even today. The people, burgies and Cape Town, they choose to live on the mountain. They, they're not, they, they could be part of civilization. They were brought up in civilization. So the evolutionary idea that we all started as cavemen and we evolved up, well, how is it that many parts of the world, people are going backwards? So evolution is provably false. What we more see is deterioration or devolution. Other comments? So yes, there was advanced technology before the flood, and that's why they could build such a phenomenal ark. And we could have lost some old technology. We do know that we've lost some technology in terms of silk, making of steel and swords, and some shipbuilding capabilities have also been lost. Yes? It's also, with the dolphins, when they're hunting, there's a shoal of fish. They will take turns in going into the uh, shoal, and then others will be releasing bubbles around the fish to keep them in a hole because the uh, fish won't want to go yep. out. If there's, they won't want to leave the pack, because then they're easy prey, and, and then they just make a it's like like the Indians uh, racing around the um, log- wagons uh, and how they on horseback rounding up to compact them, but then some darting out. The dolphins hunting is phenomenal, but amongst the penguins, for example, you know they've got nurseries and uh, the husbands take turns looking after the little penguins while others are out hunting and fishing and Just amazing, the the social integration and cultures you've got. You could see this in many uh, animal uh, uh, groupings, family structures, where some have the task of being um, caretakers, childminders, trash carers, you could say. Others are going out doing the fishing or the hunting and uh, how they can work together. It's very impressive. There's so much to learn in nature. And that's why when people come out with dumb comments like, oh, these criminals are just like animals excuse me, no animals are that bad, and you should apologize to the animals. And when, when terrorists attacked St. James' church, they said, these people are animals. I had to rebuke my friend who said that and said, no animals behave like that. And in fact, Robert Mugabe pointed out quite well when he said that uh, the homosexual lobby, not even animals behave like this. And he said, pigs and dogs have high standards. Um, doesn't sound very polite, but he's right. The president of Kenya said to Obama when Obama came out with his gospel of the LGBTQ back in 2013, he said, the gay agenda is unchristian, it's un-African, it's unhuman, we won't accept it, we won't tolerate it, people who've destroyed their own country should not come here and lecture us on the way forward. And it's a good point. They looked at nature and they say, but animals don't behave like this. So why would you want to be promoting this? And then you get some of these imbeciles out in the... LGBT lobby who decided to try and get animals to justify their behavior. So I heard in a debate somebody came up with saying but penguins are homosexual. I said, well I actually live amongst penguins. We've got one of the largest penguin colonies close to us in Cape Town. I've worked amongst penguins and I can tell you that is totally false. Penguins are inflexibly loyal to the mate. They are totally heterosexual. They're consistently uh, faithful. In fact penguins will swim thousands of kilometers to find their mate. And which is why we had to go to such extraordinary lengths to be sure after rescuing the penguins, we put them into a big aircraft tank where they could all find one of partners that they weren't uh, running around hunting for one another in, in the oceans. And it, it was a very important thing because penguins are very, very loyal, as are hawks and eagles and swans and flamingos. And So um, when you get these so-called... Scientists and evolutionists coming out to saying, well, you know, you see this pattern amongst the animals, which even if it was true, wouldn't justify it for human behavior. But the fact is, in fact, the animals show more morals than many of these perverts. So, you know, they destroyed the arguments. And when they were talking about this penguin thing, I was able to question this person in this radio program, saying, Have you even met a penguin? Have you ever handled a penguin? Have you ever lifted a held a penguin? No. Well, I have. Let me tell you about penguins. But they talk about things they don't even know about. So whenever people come up with something that doesn't make sense, just do a bit of research, you'll find it. Just like when I come up with a Bible verse, it doesn't quite sound right. Well, let's turn to that Bible verse. Let's read the verses before and the verses afterwards. Let's get the context. and That normally solves the problem. Any other comments, observations? Um, I like how the Bible often refers to eagles as Christians. Yes, we're called to be eagle Christians, not chickens, (laughs) not scratching in the dirt. We're meant to lift up our eyes, we're meant to soar. Eagles soar high, they see further, they soar faster. I mean, everything about an eagle is inspiring. Yes, we should be called to be eagle Christians with eagle faith, not chickens. Not that I've got something against chickens, Uh, but we we are called to be more like eagles. (laughs) Chickens have their place. We all like eggs, things like that.